Is it just me, or does anyone else remember what it was like attending family events as a kid? There would be tons of food with the dining room table packed with place settings for the adults. You see, in my family, as a kid, you didn't get a seat at the big table with all its food and beautiful place settings. No, you had to sit at the kids' table. That little folding thing wedged in the living room between dad's recliner and the wall? And today, while I'm far from being a kid, I still feel like my profession is forced to sit at the kids' table. When I think about professions like doctors or lawyers, they often get a say in how they conduct their business. They get to sit at the proverbial adult's table. Yet, as law enforcement, we are expected to watch change from the sidelines, from the kids' table. Why is that? That's what we're going to explore on today's episode. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. Let's back up and talk about a topic many of us never truly contemplated. It's a question around what we are. Is law enforcement a profession? And the answer on its face may seem clear. Yes. So if that's true, then why aren't we treated like other professions? In 2006, Zack Snyder directed a movie called 300. You might remember this one. It was a movie based on the Battle of Thermopylae. Now, my favorite scene of that movie shows the leader of the Spartans, Leonidas, meeting with another group of Greeks marching to fight the Persians. Now, Leonidas' friend is disappointed to find out that the Spartans brought only a handful of soldiers. Leonidas then starts asking the Greeks their professions. One says he's a potter, one a sculptor, and another a blacksmith. Leonidas turns to the Spartans and asks them their profession. This was the response. Spartans! What is your profession? <laughs> Throwing their spears into the air. Leonidas turns back to his friend and says, You see, old friend, I brought more soldiers than you did. Now that is a pivotal scene in the film setting up everything to come after. It was incredibly important for the Spartans to not only understand what they do and why they do it, but to also make sure everyone else understood that as well. You see, the Spartans knew their profession. They knew what they did, and they were the ones who set the standards. No one made the Spartans sit at the kids' table. And to understand why law enforcement isn't treated like a profession, let's first define what a profession is. A profession is an occupation founded upon specialized education with the purpose of providing counsel or services to others in the interest of not only the specific client, but the public and community as a whole. Now, that's basically a fancy way to say that you have specialized education and training, allowing you to provide a service to people that benefit the greater population. Now, there are six different steps that are needed to view an occupation as a profession. And those are, one, the occupation becomes a full-time occupation. Two, the establishment of a training school. Three, the establishment of a university school. Four, the establishment of local associations. Five, the establishment of a national association of ethics. And six, the establishment of state licensing laws. With those guidelines, we're able to see how the number of professions has grown over the years, as well as how the development of the term profession has led to significant enhancements in those fields. So what's my point with this? Well, if you pass the litmus test of being a profession, 
then we're basically saying that a profession is an occupation that is never actually off the clock, one that trains its members to a basic level of performance, provides advanced education for its members, and focuses on being oriented for the common good of society. They've positioned themselves as the final arbiter in matters regarding the profession. See, you have a medical problem, you ask your doctor. You have a legal problem, you ask a lawyer. If you have a cop problem, you ask Karen on Facebook. And Karen doesn't work at the PD. So why do we ask her? Because law enforcement is not viewed as a profession by the general public. See, instead of asking us, other people are looked to for advice, information, knowledge, and even reform. You don't see a professor of theology from a large liberal arts college giving the medical profession tips on how to treat colon cancer patients. It just doesn't happen. But we do see all the time sociology professors who have never worked a day as an officer giving tips on police reform. My stance is that because we are not looked at as a profession, people listen to them instead of us. Is this how it's always been? Well, that's part of the problem. Before we get ahead of ourselves, let's take a step back and see how we got here. Hang on for today's history lesson. Now, we were not always a profession. When law enforcement began in the United States, it was based on the English system. It was a night watch made up of volunteers, people avoiding conscription, and in some instances, people serving punishment for small crimes. They basically kept a watch and alerted the town if there was a problem. Most just drank and slept. Now, this system quickly gave rise to the paid-to-protect system. Now, this version, usually in conjunction with the night watch system, had officers that were paid for police protection, and they were paid by getting monies for serving warrants. These, or versions thereof, continued for a very long time. Now, the honor of creating the first modern municipal police department in the U.S. started in Boston in 1838, but modern in form only, not in policy or practice. In the southern states, law enforcement developed slightly differently, and many argue that the birth of law enforcement in the South developed around the slave patrol, organizations that were formed to hunt down runaway slaves, terrorize them into staying on the plantations, and providing discipline for the slaves while working on the plantations. And while these actions have nothing to do with law enforcement, there is no argument that after the Civil War, many people involved with the slave patrols made their way into law enforcement and helped enforce the Jim Crow laws that came about after the war. As the 19th century wound down and the 20th century spun up, the United States grew at an amazing rate. And so did law enforcement, at least in size. Unfortunately, not in professionalism. You see an organization made up of volunteers and for-profit policing with racist Southern roots doesn't tend to just start doing things the right way. Not to worry, help was on its way, but not until halfway through the 20th century. So here are some examples for our not-so-glorious past. In the 1890s, the New York City Police Department, which was already almost 50 years old at the time, was the most corrupt organization on the planet. Its officers and administrators' sole purpose was to collect graft and protection money. A young Theodore Roosevelt moved into a position as police commissioner and spent his entire time there working to clean up the department, with dubious results. 
In the 1920s, the Osage Indians of Oklahoma were the richest people in the world, but being Indians, they were not allowed to look after their own affairs. The government believed that they were incompetent to do so and appointed guardians for them. And during a period of five years, over 20 rich Osage Indians were murdered, shot, poisoned, and even bombed. And much of that perpetrated not only by the guardians in an effort to steal their money, but local law enforcement as well. This led to the beginnings of the FBI with J. Edgar Hoover sending in investigators to try and stop the senseless slaughter. During the Great Depression, many farmers whose lands and crops were now useless took up policing in an attempt to make money by serving warrants. That pay-to-protect system again. No skills, no training, no professionalism. Let's fast forward to the 1950s. Here is where we start to see a push for law enforcement to become professional. Now, as for training, well, that took a while to catch on as well. The first police academy in the United States, designed to provide basic law enforcement training, started in 1924 at the Los Angeles Police Department. Now, you might think that would be a hot ticket, but no one seemed very interested in what was going on way out on the West Coast. It wasn't until 1964 that the New York City Police Department started their police academy, and most of the other states in between didn't start developing academies until the late 1960s. You heard me correctly. It took over 40 years for the advent of a police academy to catch on. Think about that for a moment. It's only been a little over 50 years since we started trying to be professional. No wonder we get pushback from the community. People love to say that all of you cops are brutal, crooked, racist, stupid. Maybe we were, but we definitely are not now. And that's the story we have to start telling. But are we a profession? Does the community have it right? Should others outside of law enforcement be the ones making the decision for us? Before we can answer this, let's go back to our initial question. Look at the steps to become a profession and see how we measure up. One, an occupation becomes a full-time occupation. Well, cops are always on duty. They are never off the clock. And while there is no legal responsibility to act, there is often a moral one. And any law enforcement action taken off the clock will legally be seen as acting under the color of authority. Check. Two, establishment of a training school. Basic law enforcement academies are required now in every state in the United States. There are a number of similarities in the academies, and most meet not only state, but federal guidelines and best practices. All federal agencies also have basic academies, and while the specific amount of training hours differ, their goals do not. Provide basic level training for brand new police officers. In addition to the basic training, all states in the United States require annual in-service training, and this consistent mandated training covers everything from bloodborne pathogens to sudden infant death syndrome to human trafficking and diversity training. States require anywhere from 24 hours to, in some cases, over 40 hours of continuing education every year. Check. Three, the establishment of a university school. Many of you might not make the connection here. You tend to look at university schools as Harvard Law School or the Indiana University School of Medicine, but we do have our advanced schools. The Southern Police Institute at the University of Louisville and the FBI National Academy are two good examples of higher education for law enforcement. Check. For the establishment of local associations. And we can start with the Fraternal Order of Police and then add associations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the National Sheriff's Association, American Academy of Forensic Science, International Association of Women in Police. I could go on and on. 
Check. Five, the establishment of a National Association of Ethics. Now, in July of 1992, the Institute for Law Enforcement Administration launched the Center for Law Enforcement Ethics. Now, ethics is a big part of any profession. The IACP has created a code of ethics that has become a standard template across the United States. Most of your agencies have a variation on this code. As for a standard of ethics, check. And then, of course, the sixth step, establishment of state licensing laws. Every state in the United States has requirements regarding training and performance for police officers. Not everyone can do this job. Check. Now you tell me, is law enforcement a profession? Yes. Many of you might not think this was ever in doubt. When I ask my classes if they believe law enforcement is a profession, they all say yes. Now that we agree, how do we get treated as such? How do we get out of the kid's corner and find our seat at the table? You see, if we continue to be viewed as something other than a profession, then I don't believe we will ever make the advancements we need to make. And there are many things we need to do. Think about it. If society looks at police as a job or, say, a trade like pipe fitters or electricians, then they will not believe that the police are capable of making advancements, changes, and even reform within their own ranks. When that happens, outsiders will set policy. In just the last few days, I've heard people say things like, police must fire warning shots prior to using deadly force, or my favorite, shoot suspects in the arms or legs to stop them. Then there's this one, police must exhaust all other opportunities before using force. An excellent talking point, and since deadly force situations are rapidly evolving events that often last between five and seven seconds, opportunities are few and far between. Another talking point. Chokeholds must be banned by agencies. Chokeholds are banned by agencies, and if there aren't, then shame on the agency for not updating their use of force policy in the last four decades. See, the general population looking at police not as a profession, but as a job that should be governed and managed by people outside of the police force, we're told how to do our jobs by people who have no idea what it takes they have no idea what those suggestions really mean. Why? Because they've never experienced it. We have to start educating people on what it actually takes to be a police officer, what it takes to be in this profession. And the reality is, for most of us, it's much more than a profession. It's a calling. Vincent Van Gogh said, Your profession is not what brings home your weekly paycheck. Your profession is what you're put here on earth to do with such passion and such intensity that it becomes spiritual and calling. See, being a police officer is a calling. You generally don't stumble into it while looking to do something else. It's who you are. It's your passion, your drive, and you have an overwhelming desire to serve. A calling gets you through those tough times. It's why you'll work crazy hours for low pay. It's why you continue to put on the badge and protect people that just yesterday were calling you terrible names. Now, while we can share how much training and screening goes into becoming a police officer, the reality is for many of us, it's so much more than a process. Most of us started our journey to be an officer at a very young age. I remember watching my father serve his community. He was a pipe fitter by trade, but on the weekends, he'd put on a sheriff's uniform and go to work as a reserve deputy. Seeing him work at the basketball games and football games while I was in school really showed me something about giving back and helping out, and there's no doubt my father laid the groundwork for my future career. He helped me find my calling, and it's necessary for any real profession. 
Now, the next step is a little harder. Our profession can get better and we have to get better. As a profession, we have to get better to stay true to our calling and stay true to the reasons we became officers in the first place. And now that we've established that we're a profession, what has to change and how do we move forward? Well, as officers, we build armor to protect us from that toxic environment we work in. That armor affects many of our relationships, our attitudes, and our performance. And when someone questions our ability, we automatically get defensive. We get to use the armor in all its glory. Here's my challenge to us. We shouldn't be afraid of getting better and doing better. I remember working night shift in the early 90s. You would roll on a disturbance call, and when you got there, you'd have several people yelling at you and responding with, everybody shut the fuck up. It wasn't out of the question. As a matter of fact, it was common. Now, I retired in 2019, and just before leaving the force, I rode with an officer. Now, he had been on the department for a little over two years. We responded to a call, and the suspect was getting pretty mouthy with the officer, and I remember standing there, waiting for the officer to yell at the suspect. But he didn't. He kept talking to him in a very calm and professional manner right up until he calmly and professionally handcuffed him. The change in how he was talking to this person was jarring, and it was better. Now, as professionals, what should we be focusing on to improve? Here are just a few ideas to consider. Improving training, not only in the basic academies, but the in-service as well. Building on the basic academy curriculum to include not only classroom, but an increase in scenario-based real-world training. Basic Academy should look at merging a combination of collegiate-level classes found in the community college-based training system with the cops-teaching-cops approach found in the traditional academy settings. By bringing those two types of training together, we can get the best of both worlds to improve our basic level of training. Stop focusing training on specific legislative requirements like precious metals and start training on things that will help us in our jobs. The de-escalation training is a staple in most use of force training programs, but it doesn't hurt to work on learning how to talk people down without forgetting how to protect yourself and your community when necessary. Adding things like mental health first aid so that responding officers can recognize when someone is in mental health crisis and they can start taking steps to solve the problem without force. Increasing our data collections so we can make sure we're using things like intelligence-led policing to find the bad guys and lock them up. This will let us focus our dwindling resources to solve problems. Encouraging governments to create other service groups that can relieve police from taking non-police calls without cutting police budgets. And finally, if you want exceptionally trained officers who never make mistakes, then you'd better be prepared to pay for it. By encouraging reform and working internally to make it happen, we can ensure that our profession is heard. So when it comes to decisions, we're better as a whole and not just feeding political agendas. This process starts with you, the officer, being professional, working at a professional level, and encouraging the next generation of officers to be professional. When Leonidas turned to his soldiers and asked them their profession, they didn't hesitate to answer, and neither should you. Do you remember when you finally came home for the big family holiday and after the hugs and hellos, the catching ups and the gifts, everyone moved into the dining room to get something to eat, and as you looked around for your place you realize that this year you were sitting at the big table. It makes a difference. Blue Canary is here to help you tell your stories. And I couldn't do that without the help of some very generous sponsors. Let's take a quick break to hear from one. 
Help your team rise to increasing expectations with Agency 360's cloud-based software. Whether it is for the training of new employees or annual performance evaluations, Agency 360 can help trainers and supervisors streamline documentation, create consistency, and communicate clearly. Help retention by setting the tone and culture early with Agency 360. Learn more at Agency360.com. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y 360.com. In this segment of the show, I want to discuss some of the recent social media activity, specifically the just walk away from law enforcement movement. Now, Travis Yates, a police officer, administrator, and author, wrote a recent article which has some great points, but one section stands out. He writes, quote, I wouldn't wish this job on my worst enemy. I wouldn't never send anyone I care about into the hell that this profession has become. It's the only job you can do everything right and lose everything. It's the only job where the same citizens you risk your life for hate you for it. It's the only segment left in society where it's cool to discriminate and judge just because of the uniform you wear. You never get to explain. You can never reason with them. The nasty words have now turned into rocks and bottles and gunfire. Now, while I don't agree with everything he says in the article, I can understand it. The real interesting thing is it's sparked the just walk away from law enforcement movement. A number of friends, colleagues, and national voices have started to call for officers to just walk away. As the calls for defunding police grow, so do the posts on social media. I've read things like, quote, just walk away. It's not worth it. Or whole departments need to walk away. Give them what they want. Think it's time for the blue flu. Another one, NYPD rank and file need to drop your equipment and go home until the city and state leadership cries uncle. Sorry, NYC, you're on your own. I get the sentiment. I really do. And I've felt that way more than once in my career. But what happens when you walk away? Does the single mother who hears someone at her back door get any safer? How does the family a business owner who, who's been having problems with people stealing from his business deal with the problem? How does the seven-year-old who hears daddy beating on mommy and calls 911 get any help? See, remember, these are just a few of the hundreds of reasons you got into law enforcement. To make a difference, to help people, to right wrongs. Guess what? You can't do any of that from the sidelines. You know, and the cops walk away push over social media. It got worse when the Fulton County, Georgia district attorney announced that he would be seeking murder charges against an officer who shot a combative subject who had resisted arrest, took the officer's taser and shot it at the officer before the responding officer shot back and killed him. Now, this apparent political attack against officers resulted in the reports of large portions of the Atlanta Police Department just not showing up to work after the announcement. By walking away from the job, you're simply giving in to the chaos and putting the people who support you, which is the vast majority of the public, at risk. The anti-police advocates are politically motivated. And as blue canaries, the police were the first line of defense for the safety, security, and the constitutional rights of the citizens. That means that they're the first attacked. And because we're the first attacked, we've got to understand a little bit about the political agenda that's coming into play here. Now, there are four phases to it. One, disenfranchisement. Take away the police's right to defend themselves and to adequately defend citizens. Number two, demoralize. Cut the heart and spirit out of the officers. Let's make it impossible for them to come to work every day. Three, defund. Take away the money that pays the bills. 
Now, over 90% of all police budgets are salary. So every dollar you're cutting, those are cops that are protecting the street. So when you start cutting them, there's not enough cops to do the job. Disband. Now, while many people believe in a world where we don't need cops and reality is much different from that, the political push for disbanding isn't about getting rid of the police, but about getting rid of the good police so that they can replace them with mindless political followers. Now, don't walk away. Fight back. Don't let them take your rights. The Supreme Court has upheld your rights time and time again. We need to keep fighting in the courts to push back against those people trying to make the world less safe. Don't let them get to you. Now, this is the hardest one because every day you are bombarded with negative comments from all sides. Your elected officials, the morning news, all of social media, and even the people who you deal with day to day. Remember that these people, they're the vocal minority. They're not the majority. The majority of the people you serve appreciate what you do and even love you for it. And more than anything, remember why you took the job and what it means to you to come to work every day. Put on that badge and make a difference in people's lives. There's no finer thing you can do with your life. And this is your calling. Next, stay involved in your local organizations. As an officer, your department has the ability to control some of what you say. So standing up and speaking at the city council meeting is not an option, but it is an option for your unions. Use those protections to speak directly to the people that support you in person, in print, and on social media. And finally, don't walk away. Walking away is giving up. Remember, they are not the majority, just the loudest on the block. They're the bullies. And as officers, our job is to face down the bully. Do your job. Do it professionally. Take pride in it and stay safe. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. 